Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on international business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. Welcome to the Culture Matters Podcast. We're on episode number 79. We go all the way to the United States where we talk to Shane Green. Shane Green is a world-renowned keynote speaker, author of Culture Hacker, and television personality. Shane Green is a business magnate who consults global Fortune 500 leaders on customer experience and organizational culture. Shane draws upon his foundation at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company and works in multiple industries to transform your employees' mindset, experience, and habits to improve customer experience, employee retention, and organizational performance. As a catalyst for the modern service economy, Shane Green and his team inspire companies and their people to move beyond the mundane and out of the status quo, so they want to exceed the expectations of their internal and external customers. We talk a lot about organizational culture, to some extent a little less about um, national cultural differences, but nonetheless, it's a very interesting podcast, and make sure you listen all the way to the end, because the three tips, the three takeaways that you can get from this podcast are absolutely really good. Let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at the Culture Matters Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, Sean. How are you? Good, good, good. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. It took some time, but finally you're here. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, you know what? Sometimes the best things do take a little bit of time. I'm good, though. That's true. That's like just like a French wine or wine in general, I guess. Just leave it on the shelf for some time. All right. Um, it's um, it's like I said, good to have you here. And the first question that I ask everyone uh, that comes on the show is: tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, where do you come from? Where are you currently? And what would you consider being your cultural frame of reference? Okay, uh, Lots of questions sounds- in one go. So you got, I'll give you about ten minutes for this one. Okay, so it sounds loaded. Well, uh, I'm a Kiwi originally, so uh, born in New Zealand, uh, where I spent. I was there till uh, about twenty one. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but in New Zealand, you know, once you've finished uh, university, they pretty much kick you out of the country. Um, they give you visas and they they want you to go to explore the world because New Zealand's kind of so far from everyone else. Uh-huh. Um, and so I got sent out. I had an American visa. And, you know, the hope for New Zealanders is that they disappear for two or three years, um, do their big OE, and then, of course, return. Um, unfortunately, I didn't return. Uh, so uh, it's it been depends how of- you look at it, of course. <laughs> it's, been, it's been an interesting journey. So, you know, culturally, of course, you know, being a Kiwi, uh, you, you have some ideals, some habits, some qualities that I think uh, sort of, uh, you know, really stand out. Uh, again, your listeners would probably all everyone knows a Kiwi and they're always like they turn uh-huh. up in the most odd spots. So it, it's one of those things that we just we're adventurous. We get out. Um, we explore the world, uh, but most importantly, I think we're open to the world. Being such a small country at the bottom there, 
Um, we're very, we've got a great worldview. We, we're, we're not very uh, isolationist or internal thinking. So we're very much thinking about the rest of the world. And so uh -huh. that idea, I think, has always stayed, uh, you know, very much front and center, you know, being that you're open to different cultures, different experiences, what people have to say. Uh, and I think in today's climate and today's with all the other things going on in the world, it, that's something that's pretty special and it stands out. So I've mm -hmm. uh, been in the U.S. for about 24 years. Uh, my first 10 years were in the hospitality business. Um, I was very fortunate to be at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company, um, where I got to sort of rise up the ranks, uh, open some hotels in Asia, uh, get into the sort of training business. And then 16 years ago when I left, I started my own training company, mm -hmm. um, which is still alive and well today, SGI. Um, and sort of the evolution of that has been that from training, we've developed uh, our consulting practice as well, which is really focusing uh, more holistically on the whole idea of employee experience mm -hmm. um, and how that impacts the mindset and attitude of staff every day. While training is certainly one of those elements that we think has got uh, has a big impact on it, we know it's not the only one. So uh, that's where Culture Hacker came up, which is uh, you know the book that came out uh, April 24th, mm -hmm. um, and it really just talks about this big picture methodology. So it's been a heck of a journey, um, but culturally it, it began back in New Zealand and uh, uh, so it's a Kiwi with a lot of US influences um, and a lot of worldly mindfulness uh, if you want to put it that way. Actually I, I would have guesstimated you were, you were South African. You know what? That, that's pretty common. So, depending on which, uh, which which place I'm speaking in the world, my accent can uh, you know switch slightly. It was funny when I first started speaking in the U.S. Uh, my Kiwi accent, we tend to speak quite quickly. Um, so, you know, a lot of times when I start speaking, people would look at me like, "What did you just say? What did you just say?" Um, so, I've learned to slow it down, and with with that, sort of lost some of the Kiwi, but I've picked up some other interesting uh, elements. Mm -hmm. So. Could be South African. It's it's always a fun game to try and work out where my accent's from. Yeah, yeah, good good stuff. Um, you mentioned your book already, which was uh, published on April twenty fourth, two thousand and seventeen. That is just for the people who are listening in the future. Um, I'll give you some time to plug it in a moment or towards the end, where people can find the book, etc. Uh, right. I just want we're going to talk about that because I have a couple of questions about that as well. <clears throat> Because in general, you are, and that's a bit of a difference between what you do and what I do. I focus more on national cultural differences, which would be the difference between a, a Dutchman, a New, Ze New Zealander, South African, and an American, for instance. And you look um, typically, as you mentioned yourself, as uh, at employee experience, which then very, is very closely linked to, well, culture, but the other side of the same coin, which is organizational culture. So yes. I've been listening, and you're a fellow podcaster as well, so you know how these things go. You know, we listen to each other. Like, is this yep. any interesting? So, what does this guy do? What does he sound like, etc. And your last post podcast, well, not your last, but the one that was um, April 19. So, a couple, not so yep. long, not so long before uh, before the publication of your book, you talk about the company culture of Uber, and apparently you've been talking about quite that quite some lot, quite a lot. Um, what are your thoughts about Uber and, and Amazon in relationship to each other? You know, as I said, I, I think it's even bigger than that. As I said, I think if you listen to the podcast, it's probably been going back to the last couple of years. So for me, the, the thing that, 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 that I focus on culturally is so culture, I believe, is a collective mindset of a group of people. So in your situation, you've got that, you know, obviously states and countries. I look at it on a much smaller scale, which is 
uh, within an organization and company. So this mindset and attitude is how people feel about what they do and who they do it for. That how um, is kind of got a foundation in organizational values, like company or nationalistic values um, that people have. So one of the really interesting parts that, I, that I've been focusing in on is how these values have an impact. So for me, a, a company's values focuses in on how things get done. Uh, versus how much gets done, which I think a lot of companies are still very much focused on. The problem is, is that in today's social media, very transparent world, you've got to have consideration of how you do it. So mm -hmm. for me, organizational values define how you act and interact with each other, your customers, but the organization as well. So it's how. If a company doesn't have strong values that are embedded and live, which means it's just a piece of paper on the world, mm -hmm. on the wall. What tends to happen is they forget. They just focus just on results and the deliverables. They don't care how you do it. And the problem is, is that when you don't care about how, you can just run through people, run over people, and things start to go wrong. So now we've got this world where, again, I think it started the biggest one, probably VW a couple of years ago mm -hmm. that started to really stand out. Here they were focused on emission results but they forgot how to get those emission results and therefore they started fudging numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, we had the Wells Fargo scandal. Again, what happened? Again, they were focused on oh, the number, the, the result was how many new accounts do you open and you're incentivized on it. The problem being they forgot how to do that, which is they were faking them. Now you move over to the Ubers and the Amazons. Uber's interesting because again, you're really seeing the leader, uh, the CEO of Uber being the sort of one out in the news the most right uh -huh. now. There was a video leaked, uh, which is never good. There's a sexual harassment scandal going on. And everything comes back to we've forgotten how we do things. And I think this is the big piece where organizations today are having to sit back and go, you know what? We can't fake this. We can't make it up. It's not a piece of paper that we sit on the wall or put out in the investors kind of column uh, uh, booklet every sort of year. It's something that we have to actually start taking seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're starting to see then is that organizations have realized that it can't be just speak. It has to be actually do, and they have to start living it. So Uber, I'm fascinated to watch because Travis has come out and said, we have to change our culture. Mm -hmm. And he says that, you know, when he looks at with a sexual harassment, with the way that he uh, talked about um, a taxi driver, he said, it is culture. We have to change it. We have to rethink that. So I think it's going to be a fascinating business case to watch how that shift starts to unfold because it's not just about the numbers. It's how. And especially for a startup, and again, Uber you wouldn't think of as a startup anymore with its valuation, but the reality is many companies when they come out, they run in the startup mode where it's the focus is on the results, where it's on can I get my numbers up? Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, at some point, you got to sit back and go, wait up, have we really defined how we do things? And so you're seeing, I think, in the Silicon Valley, we even do some uh, consulting for a couple of groups up there. Startups right from the beginning are having to have some really tough conversations about how. And it's really great to see that some of the VCs, uh, investors across it are really taking a renewed interest in that. Yes, it's still about the product. It's about your numbers. It's about your valuation. But there is just a much greater interest. So I'm excited to see that sort of possibilities for coming out. Um, and again, you compared it over to Amazon, you know, and again, I would say the difference between the two of them is their leaders. And again, if you look at, you know, what Jeff Bezos does, you know, here's someone who is very strong about what he believes in, yeah. about 
engagement, how people act and interact, and you hear about that a lot. And I think for me, that is the number one difference is that you've got two completely different leadership elements. Mm -hmm. And for me, leadership, as we know, is one of the key mechanisms that drives how people feel about coming to work and the experience that they have. So for me, those are, that, that, that they stand out. And you, you could even compare it to like the Zappos with what Tony's done. You know, again, someone who's really does believe in how things get done mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're perfect. But what it does mean is that as a group, they focus on doing the right way. And here's the other piece is that they put a value in human resources. And I think this is another piece is that companies that get in trouble, they don't bring human resources to the C-suite. They're not bringing it to the corporate table. Mm -hmm. They see human resources in its administrative, legislative type sort of manner uh, versus companies that really do get around their culture and really have fun, they seem to put a lot more value in. And one of the things I talk about is that culture for businesses today can no longer be just an HR thing. It's got to be a business thing, which means from the very top, you better have the guys in charge buying into it. And Seems to be uh, uh, a a bit of a hiccup towards the end of um of your um your your talk about the the difference between uh, Uber and Amazon but we got the general gist we got 99% of it all it's the um the the, the question that for me still is there is is that the majority of i mean you mentioned Uber you mentioned um uh, Amazon the, those those stick out right those companies stick out they're visible Would you agree with with me that most companies still brush over culture as be as quite lightly? They brush it away. Yeah, it's important, but and they more pay attention to window dressing and and mention the word here or there. Yeah, I listen. You're exactly right, and it goes back to the, what I said about values. That is, uh, I put values as the first uh, indicator of a company culture. And the reason I do it is because that's a perfect example of the window dressing. Yeah. Most companies have values as a piece of paper on the wall, but you go in and ask their employees, they don't even know what all the values are. The values are complicated. It's marketing, not human focused. So yeah, you're exactly right. But I think because of the transparency, and here's you know, you've got the what we call the glass door effect. You know, all of a sudden, People are really taking notice of what's happening inside the organization. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest that it's going to grow even more. We're in an experience economy right now. And everyone mm -hmm. talks about the customer experience because you go online and you have reviews and, you know, all of these things are out there. Customer experience is the, is the marketing right now. Because again, if I'm in the hotel business, I get a trip advisor and I determine it's now the single biggest driver of Uh, people to hotels. Mm -hmm. Well, you're starting to see the next evolution. I think we're in the employee experience economy. I think people, consumers are going to start looking at which companies take care of their employees, who's involved in the community, who makes a difference outside of the core values. And I think you're already seeing consumers starting to shift and support companies that do it well. So I think you're seeing consumers starting to get that kind of push, but you're seeing employees, and this is our millennials and our Generation Zs. Mm -hmm. I think this group, and again, if I talk about them for a second, Everyone talks about them being unloyal, being a completely different generation, have no values, all of this. That's complete bullshit. You know, they have the same values that every generation has. The difference is 
is that this group for the first time has a global economy in which to work, mm -hmm. which means someone sitting here I am in Las Vegas could be working in London right now because of how technology affords you that opportunity. So all of a sudden, the workforce has many more options. It's not just about where you work in your town. Mm -hmm. It's about your access to technology. Yeah. So you've seen millennials starting to see the world as a bigger picture. You're also seeing that they're just not accepting some of the BS that's gone on for years, which is managers, companies, owners disrespecting or not taking care of their employee group. Mm -hmm. They took advantage of them. They, you know, we all have those horror stories where, you know what? Um, you know, staff were basically treated poorly. Um, I remember walking into, you know, a chef's kitchen in my early days in hotels and the chef throwing things across the kitchen. And, you know, what that sort of behavior, yeah. people just think is accepted. Um, it's changing. Look at what happened in Fox News in the last uh, couple of months. You know, as I said, one of their biggest stars gets let go last week, mm -hmm. Bill O'Reilly, because sexual harassment, complete disregard for people. This is the change that is happening going on right now is that, you know what, right now companies better start taking this seriously because their employees are, because they're sick and tired of the abuse mm -hmm. and the harassment, and the consumers are because they're starting to have more faith in doing what's right. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's, it's a quick change, but you're seeing the way. And as I said, I think the employee experience economy is coming. I think it's here. And I think the bottom line is that when you think about it, you know, the talent wall was one, talent won. So start taking care of them because if you don't, mm -hmm. then you're going to lose. You're going to lose customers. You're going to lose everything else. So, you know, for me, that window dressing is absolutely being loud and clear. I think there's just this change going on, which is so exciting. And that's why, you know, I, I, as I said, I, I'm excited that the timing is great because what we try to do at Coach Hacker is, hey, how do you reprogram that experience to have a better mindset and attitude? Because people go, well, you can't change culture. I'm going, you absolutely can because culture is a mindset. Yes. And you have a big influence. You're not 100% controlling it, but companies have a massive influence. It's the number one uh, thing in terms of time that people do. So they have a big influence on someone's time during the day. And they really have a massive influence about how people come mm -hmm. to work. You see the companies out there that are doing you know, the, the, the best customer service companies, the best customer experience companies, what do they do well? It's not just customer experience. They take care of their employees, mm -hmm. not yeah. rocket science. Yeah, and if, you, and if you don't, somebody else actually will. Absolutely. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's in, a, in a way, it's evolution as well. So I want, I want to um, test on or, or, or ask you for some advice, not myself, but in general, the audience, that is. Now, in my experience, when top management engages into um, a culture change and a culture intervention. So they do see, okay, we have to do something. Eventually top management is not yes, because they have to sign the, the bill in the end. So they say yes. And you go ahead, not you per se, but one li people like you, like myself, go ahead in an organization like this. We slowly expose the, the, the gap, if you want, or the, the difference in, in opinion between what management thinks, uh, which is your C level and possibly the rest of the organization there very often there's a huge gap then all of a sudden management gets weary like i didn't really want to see that so how do you and then in my experience i've seen a, a number of these of management team budge out and say okay well we have different priorities all of a sudden um for whatever reason it could be it could even be the weather but how do you how do you prepare management for stuff like this, that there could be like, um, you know, corpses falling out of, out of closets, these kind of things, you know, how do you guard them? How do you help them? 
Yeah, listen, that, that, that's the biggest piece I think that you've hit on of, of what gets in the way of wanting to create this change is that you're right. The managers are, are scared as heck because they know they've got these skeletons in the closets. Mm-hmm. But the piece is, is that you have to start fronting up. Honesty is always the best policy. Transparency, which is, I guess, the buzzword in business, uh, you know, has been for a number of years. The reality is is you can't hide stuff anymore. Um, And and I think that's got to be a big, loud message out there to everybody. And and so the piece is, is that how do you get managers is that you have to, you know, you have to bring them along. It's almost like you're coaching them through this because everyone says that, you know, I'll change, I'll change. No one really wants to change. So one of the biggest, most important things is we do a lot of, spend a lot of time with the managers before implementing any changes in an organization. Mm -hmm. We make sure that they are comfortable uh, and confident. And we have to, you have to understand that quite often through the change process, there's more of a focus on the employee level. What we say is, listen, the employee level, we'll get to them. You know what? But here's our piece. We don't, we, I, I, we worked for an organization and uh, a couple of years ago, and we were doing the kickoff, and there one of the uh, head executives sent a video out to all the stores and everything saying, hey, let's basically our culture sucks. You guys, uh, everything's negative. We're going to change this or else. Mm-hmm. And I mean, talk about the most stupidest way to start a, a cultural transformation. Mm-hmm. So what we talk about is that when it comes to the employees, you want to do it very quietly. In fact, for the first six months, maybe 12 months, they don't even know anything's happening because we're working with the executives and the managers. We're, we're, we're setting it up. We're looking at those gaps that you talked about and starting to strategize how to close those gaps. And we've identified about 13 mechanisms that can be used. So we look at the low-hanging fruit. We look for the easy changes. But all the time, we're coaching the managers, getting them to feel good. It's a, you know One of the first steps is to put new values in potentially that actually close the gap and are relevant to a new generation of workforce. So you want to make sure that the managers are up and running and feeling good about that from the very beginning. So for me, it's that process with the managers that takes time, yes. which is the biggest part of this change process. You have to bring them along slowly, talking them through it, and then giving them almost an opportunity to air out where they may have gone wrong and guide them through the apology process. There is nothing wrong with saying sorry. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging and being a little humble that maybe the way I did things in the past wasn't quite right. And so what we want to do is take them down this path. And then when the managers are ready, that's when we truly start to engage more of the employees in the process. So I think you hit it on there. And as I said, you know, uh, as you go through this process, the managers is the biggest sort of uh, barrier to overcome. And therefore, spending time with the managers and executives, not rushing it, not running out and saying, hey, we got to change and putting all the pressure on everybody. So everybody's wondering, what does change mean? What we want to do is slowly have the managers the executives, the owners start to shift some of their behaviors, some of their thinking so that the employees, when they look up, they see change already in process. They see it that it's something that everybody's engaged in. And most importantly, we don't lose anybody and they see that it isn't something to be fearful of. Yes. And it's, it's modeling, modeling through C-level people in higher management positions. If they, if they do it, then it, it's somebody else. The, the, the rest will follow as well. Okay. Now, you mentioned something um, – I'm going to link on on what you also mentioned in that podcast that I listened to about organizational culture and that being kind of wishy-washy, soft kind of 
tender stuff, which is, you know, fluffy and, and, and that is a typical, I find a very typical Anglo-Saxon response to these kind of um, uh, tools or instruments or approaches, if you want. Is that something that is, is that like an upward uh, struggle, like pushing the ball up the hill, typically in Anglo-Saxon areas? And what's your experience in other parts of the world with that? Yeah, so I, I think the pieces, and, and again, if you go back to it, the reason is, and this is where I go back to my human resource peers and sort of say, hey, there's a responsibility here. When it comes to that C-suite, you see marketing, you see operations, you see finance really driving so many of the decisions throughout the organization. Mm -hmm. And what's happened is that, you know, the human resource element, it's funny, you know, you, you can go through history and see when human resources gets invited to the table. It's always when there's labor concerns. Uh -huh. So when... You know, when there's plenty of uh, labor out there, they tend to get pushed to the bottom. Uh, when labor gets tight or, or when these sort of things start, they get invited back to the table. The problem is, is my human resource peers need to be a lot stronger in their strategic approach to employee experience and culture. Too many HR people, I find, are generalists. They've, they've been pulled into the administrative and the legis legislative roles, which is, again, very important for an organization. And so what tends to happen is because things like values are seen as softer elements, mm -hmm. you know, it's not necessarily hard. One of the things that we've focused on doing is try to make uh, values and things much more objective, much more measurable, um, things that are able to relate better to the overall sort of uh, company strategy. The biggest change I see in human resources now and over the next few years is that human resources has their own data people. They have a data analysis in there who's constantly crunching pulse numbers about how their employees feel. Human resources needs to become much more over into that dark side of numbers, mm -hmm. but at the same time using stats, using numbers to back up everything that's happening. All of a sudden now you've got business cases which makes it so much more relevant to people and the rest of the team in the C-suite about what's going on. There are business cases today that, again, happy employees equal happy customers. Happy customers mean more money to the bottom line. This is not rocket science. No. This, this philosophy, this theory, everyone talks about it, but there's always been a struggle with happy employees to happy customers. What is the true value? I mean, Lowe's out here, hardware store, did a great study a few years ago where they were able to add that employee, engaged employees could add a million dollars to the bottom line of their stores just by the fact that they would take a few extra steps to escort customers around their stores. Right. You know, that's something that's really powerful. The difference between someone who did great service, took the extra steps, was they just like coming to work more. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing this now that the data and the evidence is so much more powerful that the softer elements that was once considered soft or unimportant mm -hmm. is now becoming quite tangible, quite measurable and real. And that is why culture is no longer an HR thing. It's a business thing. And as such, I think as an HR sort of group, we need to get behind the data more. We need to become much more strategic and start to present better business cases and better reasons why. Again, the finance, the ops, the marketing people, they've been doing this for years. Yeah. There should be no difference. So you're just seeing that timely sort of shift. Um, and again, what happened – and that's a very American piece. Mm -hmm. um, I think in other companies where culture um, as, a, as an entity is recognized and valued so much more, mm -hmm. I still think you're seeing that shift into organizational work still a bit of a challenge. 
Because again, what makes people happy? I mean, culturally, I spent a lot of time in Asia. I spent time in Japan working through there. You would say culturally as a country, it's an amazing culture with very, very deep heritage and all that. Yet, I'm sorry, but you know, in the workplace, the suicide rate against, uh, in J- against young Japanese children is horrific enormous, because of the pressure that they come into the workforce. And so that shift of nationalistic culture into workplace culture still has to occur because what we're realizing is that, again, when it comes to work, it's much more than nationalistic. It's about personal ideals and values. It's about taking care of people. And I think that level of care, whether it's on a, a much larger scale or in a department, there is a responsibility for managers and leaders, whether it's of a country, whether it's of a company, whether it's of a department. And this is where you're starting to see it. The shift has to be managers manage, control, and function. They deliver the transaction. Leaders, they take care of people. And that's why we always hear the, the, the sort of saying, there's so many managers but so few leaders. And that happens regardless of the entity you're talking about. Again, look at your leader. I, I mean, here, right here in America right now, again, I look up to Canada and I go, you know what? Look at you, you know, your prime minister uh, is up there. Again, he seems to have just captured everybody's hearts and ears, but he's a people person. He gets it. It's about being a leader. It's not about just being the numbers. And, you know, you compare that to even what's happening here in America. Um, as I said, you see when there is a leader that cares yeah. and you see makes a difference yeah it's a it's, it's you feel it's it's like a sex sixth sense or seventh yeah. or eighth sense <laughs> if, if that makes any sense like that um all right nice explanations like this i want to move to your uh, uh to your book and spend a couple of words on there because uh your book was re- released to april 2017 culture hacker you talk about 12 high impact hacks to improve employee experience and i'm reading this out um to improve employee experience and performance Without giving it all away, can you just enlighten us with, say, three? Yeah, sure. So we sort of start. So what we do is we sat back and really looked at everything that touches the employee. So mm-hmm. I've already talked about the importance of values. And, uh, you know, again, uh, I use the word it's not values aren't some philosophical BS. These are real because if they're real, it's really about how. And I say that's the first place to begin with is that starting to look and see if your values actually have any meaning to your current workforce. Um, that's an important gap in that to close. What I find uh, in organizations that they've had values sitting around for years, in some cases hundreds of years, but while the values might still be relevant, their definitions and meanings have lost relevancy for a new workforce. So freshening those up and giving them some relevancy, uh, I think, is an important first part of it. One of the important elements is the interview process selecting. You know, we become really, really good and, and focused. We move so fast in this world today. One of the areas we want you to slow down is, is selecting the right people. It's interesting when you look, millennials are now interviewing companies just as much as companies are interviewing them. Yes. And the number one they're looking for is the organizational values to see if there's a match. I think companies have been behind the eight ball really looking for their ideal cultural match and their new employees. We all know how to find job fit, the skills, the experience, the schooling we're looking for. Honestly, in today's world, yes, while there are some jobs that have technical expertise that you want to find, the reality is is that we need to find people who match the qualities and the ideals of the organization because that just makes people happier coming to work. It sounds simple. So if you look at the interview process, 
I'm still amazed at how many in times when you interview today, there's no mention of company cultures, beliefs, values, uh, behavioral questions aren't being used. So those sort of things really make a difference. And then one of my big ones is what does the first day at work look like? Um, uh, you know, I was very fortunate with the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company under Horst Schultze. You know, he, he preached that when someone starts a new job, the first day is that real opportunity to create change in someone. They're open, they're not sure, maybe a little nervous, but what happens is the first day of a job sets the tone and priorities for the rest of their work career. It sounds dramatic, but first impressions count. Sure. Think about it, so many places we go today, someone's first day on the job is so disappointing. It's rules, so therefore the priorities they tell them is rules. It's a lot of paperwork, therefore the priority is paperwork. Sometimes the first day is they throw them right out onto the front line and just tell them to work. So what's the priority? Delivering tasks. The end of the day is if that first day isn't an experience that introduces the values, the company and the history and all the good stuff, then you've lost the most important, uh, I believe, uh, opportunity to really influence somebody. So right from the beginning, this is the first day of work. Mm -hmm. You've pretty much set up whether or not someone's going to come. 50% of all turnover that happens in the first year happens in the first 30 days. Why? Because people are walking in and they're going, you know what? This is not for me. Nope. So before the first 24 hours on the job, 50% of employees have decided, you know what? I already know this is not for me. Which and is a costly is affair. Shame and it's costly. And just like that, you start to see things that are so simple can make such a big difference, not only to how their people feel, but obviously the company bottom line. And that's why you start to dig deeper and you start to see these really obvious, and uh, you know, I, I, what we do is not, is, is not crazy, but very obvious ways to shift that thinking and how someone feels. Mm. And that's what we want to get people to do. And it, it doesn't matter how big the company is from startups all the way through to major corporations. It's simple stuff. And I'll tell you, the one topic I don't touch in the book, is pay because uh, people, you know, first of all, some companies can't afford to pay their staff anymore because it's tough out there. And second of all, you know what? The research is up and down. Does pay make a difference? Once the bottom line or, or a minimum wage or a wage to sustain life uh, is accomplished, there's so many other things. So True. you can do a lot of things that really has a positive impact on how many people feel that really does dramatically influence your company. All right. Sounds, sounds good. And three good stuff. Good points. There are nine points more to go, but I would reckon in your book, you would actually elaborate a lot more on, um, on these items. Culture Hacker, where can people get this? You know what? Uh, Barnes and Noble and of course, Amazon, uh, and all good bookstores, as, as they would say. Um, but, uh, it's definitely out there. Uh, we're very excited, um, that, you know, it's doing really well out of the gates, which, which is always nice. So, you know what? I just think this is one of those topics that people are, they're hearing culture, they're hearing this idea that it is important. It is still that bit of mystery. What exactly is it? Yep. Um, and hopefully we've given them some, not only some good insights to what the culture is, but as we said, some good hacks that anybody can do. Doesn't matter what level of your company, department, team, sports team, community organization, just some great things you can do that make a difference. And honestly, at the end of the day, I think, uh, you know, it's time that we're in a world that we did make more of a difference with the people that we're surrounded with.
heck, at the end of the day, it might just make people a little happier, and that, that would be a pretty cool outcome. So I uh, appreciate that. You can always go on and get it at shanegreen.com as well. Uh, and as I said, the cool part is you can come and ask me questions on there. So please do. If you've got questions, uh, come and send it out. Get it back to you in 24 hours. You know what? We're, just, we're starting this movement. We're, mm-hmm. we're bringing it front and center. We're not going to stop. So I'm really excited uh, if people get on board and you know we can just make this a better conversation and a bigger conversation. Okay, just repeat that. Where can people get in touch with you, Shane? Uh, it's Shane at ShaneGreen.com. Just go to S-H-A-N-E-G-R-E-E-N.com. Come and uh, there's a box on there. Send me a note. Send me a message and uh, let's talk. All right. Cool. I think you've made your pitch really well. <laughs> really well. Almost very American Anglo-Saxon for sure. I uh, know. Hopefully there's still a bit of Kiwi in there. I don't want to lose it all. No, no, no. You're good. You're good. Don't worry. All right, Shane. Thanks for your time and thanks for coming on the show. And I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. I look forward to it. Take care, everyone. You too. Bye-bye. That's it for episode number 79. Shane, again, thank you for coming on the show. If you want to see what we look like or if you want to prefer to watch some video uh, rather than only listen to this podcast, go to YouTube um, or rather go to culturematters.com slash YouTube. You'll find all the the videotaped podcasts, the video casts, in other words, right there for your uh, consummation um, and um, what else do I have to add? Oh, what else? I have to add that you can download the Culture Matters app as well by going to culturematters.com slash app. Um, you'll find some links where you can go to the iTunes store and the Google Play store or scan a QR code, which will get you right there as well. And then finally, I would like to ask you to give this show a rating in iTunes so you know how that works, giving a rating. And the better, of course, the better, the higher the rating, the better it is because the more people will actually be able to find this podcast. Thank you for your time. I know you can spend it somewhere else, but I really appreciate it that you spend it here with me. I'll be back in two weeks time with another episode of the Culture Matters podcast. Take care then. Bye bye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.